You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1923rd edition of St Edmund's for News Talk for the 5th of April 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin. The producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Carol and David Goodrum. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Local integrated care boards take over NHS dentistry. I believe in local radio. It should be local. Town's second bank closure in a month. Disappointing. Police swoop as trouble flares outside McDonald's. Placing dentistry in the hands of the local NHS is the best way to tailor services, believes Suffolk MP Dr Therese Coffey. The MP for Suffolk Coastal was speaking as, from April the 1st, local integrated care boards take over responsibility from NHS England for the commissioning of NHS dentistry. Putting dentistry into the hands of the local NHS is the best way to tailor what is needed, Dr Coffey says. However, Toothless in England, the pressure group that is calling for an NHS dentist for everyone, said it was not convinced the move would benefit patients affected by a dental crisis that successive governments have created themselves. Bupa Dental Care has recently announced that its branches in Brandon and I will shut down as well as 85 other practices across the UK. Suffolk District already has some of the lowest NHS dentist numbers in the country, with 0.067 dentists per 1,000 patients. Dr Therese Coffey said the government has invested in dentistry and will continue to do so, including strengthening the contract with dentists. However, I also think that putting dentistry into the hands of the local NHS is the best way to tailor what is needed. Just as happens to recruit more GPs to rural areas, a package of financial support delivered locally could also incentivise dentists to either relocate or to extend existing provision, boosting capacity in Suffolk. We've already seen the local NHS working very closely with the University of Suffolk, with the formation of the Centre for Dental Development in Ipswich. Not only providing treatment on the NHS, but designed to attract and train newly qualified dentists to increase the supply of dentists right across the county. The Toothless in England spokesperson said, while ICBs will be waking up to an increase in their budget and additional responsibilities, Patients across the land will have suffered another restless night of dental pain, all because there's no NHS provision within easy reach. 
Only a small number of ICBs around the country recognise there is room for them to innovate when it comes to delivering NHS dentistry. However, we believe this will only go to further deepen the postcode lottery when it comes to accessing an NHS dentist, and it certainly won't fix the problem any time soon. Radio star Mark Murphy has bowed out of a 33-year career as BBC Radio Suffolk, blaming cuts to local broadcasting for his departure. Hosting his final show, the presenter told his listeners, BBC Local Radio is going through some big changes at the moment, with more to come. I looked at what is happening in the future, and it's going in the direction I don't particularly want to go in. So... I've decided I'll go in a different direction, the broadcaster said. He added, I was standing on the picket line for the NUJ a week ago. It's the reason I'm leaving, because of the changes that have been made, and it's the reason that other great broadcasters and colleagues will be leaving other stations as well. I firmly believe in local radio, and local radio should be local. The 58-year-old revealed he was to leave the station after more than 30 years in his weekly column in the East Anglian Daily Times on Saturday the 25th of March. He announced he was to leave ahead of what he yesterday described as seismic changes being made to BBC local broadcasting. The changes will mean local programmes will be replaced by regional shows at weekends, apart from local sports coverage. Mr Murphy recently moved from presenting BBC Radio Suffolk's breakfast show to hosting a Saturday and Sunday morning show. He thanked his listeners uh, for his 33 years served at BBC Suffolk, his support for the county and to wish him well for the future. Mr Murphy also recalled some of his happiest memories during his time as a broadcaster at the station. On his Saturday show, Mr Murphy said... There still will be Radio Suffolk here, maybe slightly different, but there will still be one. On his decision to leave, Mr Murphy has said, I won't kid you, it's been a big decision to walk away from the job I love, but I believe the time is right. The forthcoming closure of the branch of Halifax in Newmarket Town Centre has been branded as disappointing by a community leader. Halifax has confirmed its intention to shut its branch in Market Street in the West Suffolk town on September the 11th this year. In mid-March, Barclays announced it was planning to shut its High Street branch in June. After the bank's close, it will leave NatWest, Nationwide and Lloyd's as the only major banking options in the town. The nearby town of Mildenhall will have none when Barclays leaves later this year, confirming the closure, <coughs> a Halifax spokesman said. Like many other high street businesses, we've seen people using our branches less frequently in recent years, as more customers choose to do most of their everyday banking online. As a result, we've made the difficulty, difficult decision to close this branch because customers are using it less often. In addition, the majority of customers are also using alternative ways to bank. 
Andy Drummond, county councillor for Newmarket, said he was concerned residents and Halifax and Barclays customers would have no access to cash or other services when the branches shut their doors for the final time. He said it's quite disappointing news. It's a shame we won't have these banks. Will we still have a hole in the wall? We also used to have an HSBC, but we lost that too. It's not just Newmarket, though. We can't single out one town. It's the banks themselves that are defending this, sorry, deciding this. Even Cambridge has had banks in the high street closing. If we're going to lose these banking services, will we still have somewhere to complete the mere or the more complex transactions? A 16-year-old boy was arrested after a fight involving a gang of teenagers outside McDonald's in Bury St Edmunds Town Centre. Three police cars were in Cornhill after being alerted just before 5.40pm on Tuesday. At least one person was punched in the face in the incident and a short time later a 16-year-old boy was arrested on suspicion of assault. He was taken to Bury Police Investigation Centre for questioning and bailed until May the 24th. In February, Suffolk Police said they had stepped up patrols across the town and a Section 35 dispersal order was issued following concerns about gangs of youths gathering on the corner of Cornhill and Brent Govel Street. A Suffolk Police spokeswoman said there had been considerable improvement in recent weeks and a reduction in reported incidents. Officers continue to conduct patrols and will take appropriate action against the small minority of individuals who are identified as committing offences or disruptive behaviour, she said. Police were also working with West Suffolk Council, housing associations, residents and businesses on a long-term solution but it was important the public report any incidents. Following this week's incident, Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of our Bury St Edmunds Business Improvement District, said he was concerned that the level of antisocial behaviour in and around McDonald's was impacting other businesses and residents. He was being kept fully briefed by the police and recently met with the managers at McDonald's to offer the BID's support. Tuesday's fight was disconcerting, said Mr Cordell, but he was very pleased to see the police's prompt response. We're all focused on removing this type of antisocial behaviour out of the town centre, he added. We're now moving on to our general news section, and we start with an article in which the Suffolk Fire Chief says more must be done after a troubling report. The Suffolk Fire Chief has said more must be done to tackle wholly unacceptable behaviour uncovered by a National Fire and Rescue Service review. The report's deeply troubling findings have shocked and appalled His Majesty's Inspector of Fire and Rescue Services. Roy Wilshire, who said the sector needs to be brought into the 21st century, 
Reviewing all 44 fire and rescue services in England, the documents reveal racist, sexist and homophobic comments and behaviours. John Lacey, Chief Fire Officer for Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service, said their last inspection praised the service for being good, for how it promotes the right values and culture, with a positive working culture. Mr Lacey added, however, we agree with HMICFRS's recent findings that whilst the majority of fire and rescue staff across the country act with integrity, more must be done to stop these carrying out wholly unacceptable behaviours such as bullying, harassment and discrimination, which can be devastating for colleagues on the receiving end. Our service remains committed to providing a safe space for all staff to report any concerns in confidence without this impacting negatively on their career, as well as empowering our people to find supported when challenging colleagues who behave inappropriately. Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service received fewer than five complaints of bullying and or harassment throughout 2022, which is the period referenced in the report. An SFRS spokesman said that these complaints were fully investigated and complainants received ongoing support from the fire service, Suffolk County Council's HR team and their dedicated employee assistance wellbeing programme. They added, whilst we hope that this is an accurate representation of Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service, we appreciate that people may not always come forward and continue to encourage staff and members of the public to let us know if they find that any member of the fire service hasn't demonstrated our expected values. A care home in Bury St Edmunds could be demolished and replaced with a new multi-million pound state-of-the-art facility. Cornwallis Court in Hospital Road is coming to the end of its operational life and is proving increasingly difficult for operator RMBI Care Company to provide the level of care required, planning documents said. The charity is seeking permission from West Suffolk Council to demolish the 69-bedroom home and build a new 64-bedroom, two-storey home with associated communal facilities, car parking and landscaping. A planning statement said that it was proving increasingly difficult for the RMBI to provide the level of care required in the existing building, which opened in 1981, with the main building formed from an old cottage hospital. The layout of the inside of the home, rated good by the Care Quality Commission this month, can lead to feelings of isolation, anxiety and confusion, it said. A statement from RMBI said the rooms, particularly at ground level in the nursing wing are small and fall a long way short of the standard seen in modern-day care homes. The size and layout of the home makes it very difficult to operate on a cost-effective basis. It said the home was being subsidised by other parts of the RMBI care company portfolio, but this was not a long-term solution. The approved 2022-23 budget for Cornwallis Court was projected to produce a deficit 
of £632,000 before central overheads, with the deficit rising to £963,000 when allocated overheads are included. Early projections show that a replacement home of 64 beds, based on 95% occupancy, improves the cash position significantly, turning the deficit of 632000 into a surplus of 707000 before central overheads. Demolition and construction would be over two phases, allowing residents and staff to stay in part of the home during the first phase and move into the new wing before the second. Mark Lloyd, Managing Director of RMBI, said, Pending planning permission, we aim to create and build a new care home to support our residents in a modern, homely environment with assistive technologies and a personal approach to our care. Plans for a 210 home development in Thurston have got, gone to appeal after the application, which was submitted in 2019, was not determined. Gladman Developments Limited went to the planning inspector after Mid-Suffolk District Council failed to determine the outline application for up to 210 homes, including 35% affordable properties. New access, open space and a children's play area on land east of Ixworth Road. The outline plans were submitted to the authority in May 2019, with the council resolving to grant approval, subject to a Section 106 agreement, in September 2020. The Section 106 was agreed and signed in November 2021. In its statement of case, Gladman said the permission should have been issued promptly. However, it was not and still has not been issued. Given the Council's unwillingness to issue the permission, the applicant has been left with no option but to lodge this appeal. In planning documents, Mid-Suffolk said it delayed issuing the approval, the approval due to an outstanding judicial review brought by Thurston Parish Council against the granting of planning permission for a Bloor Homes development which has since concluded. Mid-Suffolk said the Gladman decision was not issued as the Parish Council had given notice it would also challenge that decision. According to the District Council, since the Gladman plan was last considered in September 2020, planning considerations had changed and officers are not satisfied. The authority would necessarily reach the same decision on a reconsideration. Earlier this month, Mid-Suffolk considered the Gladman scheme again and recommended refusal on the grounds of the site being outside the defined settlement boundary and said harm of approving the homes without any real and demonstrable district or local need, contrary to the development plan, significantly and demonstrably outweighs the benefits. The appeal is due to take place in July. Thurston resident John Jonathan Masters has submitted comments to the planning inspector, including We have disproportionately done our bit for Mid-Suffolk District Council land supply. No more homes in Thurston are required. 
A Bury St Edmunds food bank has been selected by the ARC Shopping Centre as its sponsored charity for 2023. Centre staff will be organising fundraisers and campaigns on behalf of Gatehouse. Team members will be volunteering with the food bank during its annual Christmas project, aiding people in need during the festive period. Proceeds from the centre's Some Bunny Cares event on April the 10th, featuring an Easter egg hunt, will be the first of a series of public events supporting Gatehouse. Previous ARC charities have included Suffolk Mind and the Suffolk Wildlife Trust. Alan Hassel, the ARC Centre's manager, said, We consider a lot of different factors when choosing our charity of the year, and we really feel that now, more than ever, it's important to support services, such as local food banks, which are seeing a drop in donations when their service is most needed. Gatehouse is a marvellous charity that runs numerous projects to support the community, including the most vulnerable in East Anglia. We are always impressed by the support our chosen charities receive from visitors at ARC, and we are sure this year's charity will be well received and supported too. Amanda Bloomfield, Gatehouse's CEO, said... We are delighted to have been chosen as Charity of the Year by ARC Shopping Centre. Having year-round opportunities to engage with local visitors to Bury St Edmunds will help us harness the generosity and enthusiasm of our community and bring everyone together in our aims to help anyone in genuine need. As the Bury St Edmunds Charity held its 33rd annual meeting, it also waved goodbye to two of its founding members, Alison Flath and Felicity Carnegie, who have been front and centre of Berry's Child Contact Centre since the beginning, have retired. Alison, a former Children and Family Court Advisory and Support Service Officer and former solicitor Felicity, have spent many years supporting parents and children to stay in touch with each other after family breakdown. Judge Fiona Shanks, charity patron, paid tribute to the contribution Alison and Felicity had made to the contact centre and wished them a happy retirement. She said, The local knowledge and professional expertise Alison and Felicity brought to their roles at the contact centre have been instrumental in its success and longevity. Set up in 1989, Berry Child Contact Centre brings together experts in family law, family services and other members of the community to provide a safe space for families to meet each week, supported by volunteers. It's run by a committee of trustees and coordinator, Ali Field. The contact centre has allowed hundreds of families to maintain contact with each other over the years and still does, offering a safe, neutral and comfortable place for children to see their non-resident parents or family. Affiliated to the National Association of Child Contact Centres, the Contact Centre is a charity run exclusively on grants and donations. Alison was shortlisted for the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2022 Berry Free Press Community Awards for her work 
with the contact centre and helping hands. She and Felicity said they were looking forward to keeping in contact with the centre through the social events organised each year, which helped to keep the community of staff, committee and volunteers in regular contact. A centre spokeswoman said, These two prolific women have provided a backbone to the service through their professionalism and immense local knowledge. They hugely deserve our respect and admiration. A couple who have a passion for writing celebrated their diamond wedding yesterday and have said they feel thankful and terribly surprised to be marking their milestone year. Alan and Doreen Young from Berries and Edmonds will celebrate their 60 years over the weekend with friends, family and plenty of cake. Alan, 81, said, The most marvellous thing is that our children have done well and our grandchildren are coming up behind them. We're very lucky that we've survived this long. Doreen, 79, added, We're pretty thankful and terribly surprised. If there are more years, why not? When Doreen and Alan first met at age 18 and 20, Doreen was working as a forecaster for the Met Office in London and Alan worked at Heifer's Bookshop in Cambridge. They met at a dance and Doreen, who had been invited by a male colleague at work, instantly clicked with Alan. They married in 1963. I went back to work with that bloke, but I went out with Alan, Doreen said. The couple then trained as teachers and Alan moved to Bury in 1973 when Colford School became a co-education school. Doreen followed in 1974. In total, Alan dedicated 31 years to the school and enjoyed the boarding side of things the most. It's more of a community compared to a day school. In a day school, you teach children and then they leave the classroom and that's all you see of them, really. In a boarding school, you do activities with them and chat to them, he said. The couple have two children, 42-year-old Naomi, who is a clinical lead nurse researcher, and 43-year-old Francis, uh, a historian. They also have four grandchildren. Alan and Doreen both developed their passion for writing later in life, and between them have published several books. It's their common interests that Alan says has helped keep them together. He said... The secret to a long marriage is that two people should understand each other. The dangerous time in a relationship often comes when the children become teenagers and the parents are thrust together again and that's when you need to be able to relate to each other properly. A huge storage facility in Bury St Edmunds is set to double in size in a bid to cope with high demand. Glasswell Storage and Distribution Centre in Suffolk Business Park, in the West Suffolk Town, is looking to extend capacity by an extra 2,000 pallet spaces, almost double the existing area. The company, which has been operating for more than 75 years, has made the decision at a time when demand continues to soar. Carl Lewis, commercial storage manager, said, With pallet storage continuing to be in high demand, this development will offer over 40% more capacity to meet client needs and enable us to welcome new customers to Glasswells. 
Paul Glasswell, Managing Director, added, Since 1946, we have been helping businesses and customers store their goods with flexible, secure and reliable storage facilities. We offer a simple and competitive solution for any business needing to store goods on pallets, from short-term storage to full pick, pack and distribution services. This extension will enable us to continue to meet customer demands. A cross-country race helped to raise over £900 for a village church over the weekend. A record number of 72 participants took part in the event at Hargrave, near Berris Nedmans, on Saturday, which included 5k and 10k routes, plus a walking route. Justin Rabbit, church warden and runner, said, The day went really well. We had more participants than last year, and the runners said it was a lovely course. Others said it was a beautiful countryside, and that it was a great race with a really relaxed atmosphere. We're really pleased with how it went. Everyone seemed to enjoy it, no matter their athleticism. Among the runners was Nick Smith from the playground, who came first in the 10k race, running it in 40 minutes and 43 seconds, followed by Jenny Watson, who ran in 45 minutes and 43 seconds. Josh Gilbert, who's 12, from Hargrave, ran the 5k race to raise money for Cancer Research UK and has totaled £235 for the charity. The money raised for Hargrave Church will mean that the church can continue to offer other events like a free community pantry as well as providing a place of refuge, reflection and housing the Hargrave Heritage Exhibition. Money will also go towards the parish share. Justin added, We're a small village, there's only 300 people in the village, and Hargrave Church is like the village centre. We try to be of use to the community, we don't feel it's any good just having a church and people going to services and then going away again. We really want to work and give use to the community. In a small village like Hargrave, we've got no pub or shop, so unless someone organises something, nobody meets anybody. There will be another run in March next year. We have a mixed bag of letters for you this week. Our first is from Barry Peters, editor of the Berry Free Press, and he says, It's time to put up or shut up. Every day it would seem we are bombarded with the views of experts on anything from potholes to council tax, Covid to Love Island, and not necessarily in that order. Those experts, and I use the term loosely, usually appear on social media and regularly offer their views from a limited knowledge base. In some cases they can be critical of our elected councillors and MPs and often have the perfect solution to life's never-ending problems. So local election time gives these experts the perfect platform. What better way to improve the lives of citizens across the UK than to seek election to local councils across the UK and really make a difference by using all their undoubted wisdom? You couldn't get me on a local council for all the money in a multi-millionaire's bank account. The often unsociable hours 
and even more difficult relationship with these experts on social media in 2023 would challenge even the best ambassador with the deepest desire just to put something back into society. So I hope we see a multitude of new choices on May's ballot papers with all those experts swapping keyboards for our council chambers. And our next letter concerns the death of Paul O'Grady and is from Ingrid Newkirk. And Ingrid is uh, the founder of PETA UK. PETA stands for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And the letter is headed, Animals Have Lost a Champion. Animals have lost a dear friend with the passing of Paul O'Grady, whose lifelong dedication to protecting them was unwavering. From joining PETA to call out animal testing in the 1990s to championing the true underdogs at local animal shelters by asking everyone to adopt, don't shop and so save a life, Paul never missed an opportunity to shine the spotlight on animals' plight. Among his many uh, achievements, travel giant Thomas Cook stopped selling tickets to marine parks after hearing from him about the immense suffering Orcus experienced in cramped, chemically treated tanks. He supported the Fur from Britain campaign. He called for a ban on that torture in a tin, foie gras. He decried factory farming and so much more. Paul once said, It is our duty to treat animals with respect. And Petter asks those who cared about him to honour his memory by showing the same kindness to our fellow earthlings that he did. There's an editor's note at the bottom of the page. Editor says, Following Paul O'Grady's death, £130,000 has been donated to Battersea Dogs Home, of which he was an ambassador since 2012. And Jim Mitchell of Carlton Colville writes, And would you believe it, yet another horror story about West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock, apparently caught out on this occasion, asking for £10,000 a day to promote the business interests of a non-existent South Korean company. Mr Hancock was not alone in this, Other Conservative MPs, including Sir Graham Brady, MP, highly regarded chairman of the Tory backbench, 1922 committee, was also reportedly involved, as was Kwasi Kwarteng, a past Conservative government minister, and Liz Truss's Chancellor of the Exchequer, sacked by the South West Norfolk MP, 44-day Prime Ministers for crashing the economy with a £30 billion borrow and give away mini-budget. Indeed, Messrs Quateng and Truss were together responsible for a financial black hole in the UK economy, sending householders' mortgages through the roof, with the pound at near parity with the US dollar. Another, fourth Conservative MP, former Government Minister Stephen Hammond, who represents the constituency of Wimbledon, was also reportedly snared by this fake company. 
This embarrassing exposure was undertaken by a campaign group calling itself Led by Donkeys, a reference to a phrase used to describe the generals who led the soldiers of the First World War, lions led by donkeys. Although to me the strange thing is that this action of asking £10,000 per day by these members of Parliament is not itself illegal, because the company in question was not a bona fide company and not registered at the UK's company's house in London. However, I believe this is just a mere technicality for those MPs willing to boost their £80,000-plus annual parliamentary salary by working for an additional £10,000 per day as yet another a perk of the job. But of course, we will see if this really does matter to constituents when it comes to placing our cross in the square identified as candidate at the forthcoming general election. And from the same pen, Mr Jim Mitchell, uh, the heading to this letter is Honours system is not fit for purpose. Controversy really does seem to follow certain people around. Take Liz Truss, Liz Truss, for instance. Achieved the keys to 10 Downing Street by dint of a Conservative members only vote by 1,600 people, yet lasted only a record 44 days. Forced by her parliamentary colleagues to step down after her £30 billion fiscal borrowing to pay for reckless, reckless tax giveaway to the already wealthy. Now we see the gut-wrenching spectacle of a Liz Truss resignation honours list to benefit her Conservative Party friends and allies. Resigning seven weeks after kissing hands with our late Queen Elizabeth II is a significant fall from grace for any politician, from any political party, at any time. Most elected representatives would have been truly humbled by this abject failure. A rejection on a grand scale. But humility is apparently not Liz Truss's style. Moreover, she has not even public, publicly said sorry to the British people. Many readers, many reading this, will be disgusted by a perpetual political honours merry-go-round, no longer fit for purpose, and rewarding mainly wealthy people who have already donated substantial amounts of money to the Tory party, further widening the, 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 uh, the chasm between them and us, leaving a stain on our democracy. And Colin Rossini of Dovercourt titles his letter, Government is at Fault. What is our government doing allowing asylum applications to stack up to over a staggering 51,000. We all know why they reduced the staff and infrastructure required to fast-track the asylum process. Now they are in a blind panic trying to deal with the aftermath of it all. No surprise given this fits the Tory mantra that we've witnessed in the NHS, police, fire services and so on. The Shadow Home Secretary calls this a failure of government and it's a blitz of trust against the electorate who expect their government to act responsibly. We will all vote again, as is our democratic duty, but trust can never be part of the agenda again. 
I expect it has eroded beyond all repair, and that is now the Tory legacy, along with gimmicky, worthless promises. R. King, via email, says, Net zero aim is little more than pretense. So Suffolk is going net zero. Who do they think they're kidding? I agree we need to cut our use of all energy, but this is just window dressing, as all we are effectively doing is exporting our carbon emissions to China and the third world. Where do people think the batteries come from? Who makes the steel? Who builds electric vehicles? Who supplies the LEDs? People need to have a close look at what they use and buy. See where it is made and who are the firms that run our country. We have exported all of our manufacturing abroad and pretend we are saving the planet. The people of Suffolk will pay for this pretense. And more concern is expressed about the state of the county's roads and pavements. The title is Pavements and Roads a Disgrace. The pavements and roads in Bury are disgraceful. Firstly, signs that are obsolete are left with their sacks to hold them. But the other more serious thing is the state of some of the pavements. Is there no one working on highways? The excuse of Covid is not acceptable. Might I remind you, the council has increased the rates. The only thing I can see we get is the refuse collection. And that letter was from Peter Russell of Bury St Edmunds. And now we have two short letters on different topics. The first is from Trevor Goodfellow of Thurston. And his letter is, uh, Arches are a delight. While walking towards the Cornhill the other evening, I was struck by the beauty of the arched frontage of the old post office. The Cornhill was lit, giving a very pleasing view of arches within arches. Top marks to the developers for a sympathetic treatment of a building which always had a beauty of its own. And Jean Kemp from Bury St Edmunds writes to say thank you for helping out. Through your letters page, may I say a grateful thanks to the lady who, on Monday, March the 20th, at lunchtime at Asda, paid for my family member's shopping. His carer had taken him shopping as usual, but his bank card didn't work. Thank you again. Without you, he would have had no groceries. We are sorting it out. Uh, Melvin Barnes writes, in appreciation of the letters of Clifford Davy who is a regular writer in the East Anglian Daily Times. It's entitled Short and Amusing, Mr Davy. I would like to congratulate your regular correspondent, Clifford Davy of Stowmarket. His letters are always short, amusing and nothing to do with Brexit. And finally, with a plethora of bank holidays upon us in May, this letter from Graham Day of Stowmarket poses the question of whether there's room for yet another. The heading of it is Day for Grumpy Old Geezers. Standing at a supermarket checkout, waiting for the people in front of me to finish their conversations with the checkout operator, I noticed that the lady behind me had a clutch of Easter eggs on the conveyor belt. 
We then got into a conversation and came to the conclusion that as we go through the calendar year after Christmas, there is always an event to spend money on, be it Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Easter, and others ad benitem throughout the year. I then said that I thought that perhaps, with me being in my seventh decade, that there should be a grumpy old geezer's day. However, this could possibly be difficult to fix, as it could occur any time of the year, in any situation, and not just a supermarket. I wonder whether this suggestion would have any mileage and what the likely uptake and participation would be. The idea is probably never likely to see the light of day, especially if it involved the granting of an extra bank holiday. Smiles at the checkout, nevertheless. And now we have a feature, and this one is um, by Suzanne Day. She takes a look at a day in the life of a recycling centre worker. A mother and son duo working for the recycling centre in Fornham Road, Bury St Edmunds, have shared their stories from behind the scenes. Katie Ward became a recycling operative back in 2007 after her father, who worked as a team leader at the old centre on Ruffham Hill, asked her to help out for a couple of days. Even though it was meant to be a temporary arrangement, Katie enjoyed working at the recycling centre so much she stuck around, moving with the team to its current site, which opened in 2020. Highlights of the job for Katie include getting to meet lots of dogs that often come along for the ride with their owners. Alongside meeting new four-legged friends, Katie said she enjoyed chatting to elderly people as often as they are the ones that don't ask for help. Years ago, roles at recycling centres were mainly taken up by men. However, now there are plenty of women working across Suffolk County Council's 11 recycling centres. Women on the team and other employees are increasingly enjoying the customer-facing side of the job. A key part of Katie's role is keeping people safe, which includes ensuring children stay in cars. She admits this can sometimes cause a few tears as they want to take a closer look at what's going on. One thing is for sure, her team is always busy, Katie said. It doesn't matter if there's snow, sleet or rain, lots of people still want to visit. Following in the footsteps of her father, David Pepper, who has now retired, Katie is now team leader at the new recycling centre and her son, Kieran, is in charge when she has time off. But that's not where the family connections end. Katie's brother, Nathan Pepper, is a team leader at another of Suffolk County Council's recycling centres in Mildenhall. And her husband, John Ward, who used to work at Bury St Edmunds Recycling Centre, can often be spotted driving by in his current role as a large goods vehicle driver for FCC Environment. Giving an insight into an average day at work, Kieran, like his mum, is focused on helping the public. As well as keeping the site clean, he assists people with heavy items. Kieran also keeps an eye on both staff and members of the public to make sure everyone is adhering to the strict site rules. He said, no matter what the weather conditions are like, we're always out there maintaining health and safety and making sure people are doing everything right. 
For Katie and Kieran, days working at the recycling centre often involve the challenge of hunting out spectacles, car keys and wedding rings. But some days can be more eventful than others. Recently, one man had to search through the textile skip after finding out his wife had accidentally thrown away all his favourite suits. Occasionally, there is a sadder story to tell, like when wives dump their husbands' clothes intentionally. Paul Smith, contract manager for FCC Environment, which runs recycling centres across Suffolk, said there had been plenty of surprising stories over the years. Members of the public had tried to discard shotguns, ammunition and other military memorabilia from World War II. In 2020, Suffolk Police had to make a visit to the recycling centre in Sudbury after someone dropped off some bones. Luckily, they were found to be from a medical skeleton. Paul, who has worked in the waste industry for the last 19 years, said, What gets me out of bed in the morning is that every day is different. When recycling centres across Suffolk reopened after the pandemic, there was a big spike in people using recycling centres. An appointment system was also put in place. Now, Paul said the cost of living crisis was having an impact on how the public used recycling centres. He said people were holding on to items for longer in an attempt to save money. Moving on to talk about the recycling bins we all have at home, Paul said the majority of people living in Suffolk want to, be, want to do the right thing. However, he admitted some people did not know what they could recycle. Each week, 3,000 nappies were taken out of household recycling in Suffolk. And Chris Morris offers a personal view of why the sun always shines on Berry in Tweed. If you describe something as posh, you mean that it is smart, fashionable and expensive. Synonyms, smart, grand, exclusive, luxury. If you describe a person as posh, you mean that they belong to or behave as if they belong to the upper classes. That sounds more pretentious to me, but nonetheless, synonyms, upper class, high class, top drawer, plummy. This is the definition of posh, according to the Collins English Dictionary. This week, Barry St Edmunds won yet another posh accolade. This time, it went to the Corn Exchange, now dubbed the poshest Weatherspoon pub in Britain. A national newspaper praised the pub-stroke restaurant for its 19th century architecture, unique among Weatherspoon's outlets, it said. The report drew attention to numerous design features which set the Corn Exchange apart from other Weatherspoons. The exterior Grecian columns remain, with its grand facade renovated and restored, the reviewer wrote. Inside is a huge glass-domed ceiling with some of the column decorations protected by glass. Take a bow, the Sun newspaper. However, this news from such an august arbiter of good taste prompted a mixed bag of comments on our Facebook page. These ranged from 
Absolutely love this Weatherspoons. Spacious and welcoming, and they have great Guinness. To their rubber fried eggs are a sight to be chewed. Their occupation of that building should have been blocked. And they will be serving beer with a cherry and umbrella next. LOL. The last one immediately conjures up images of Boise, Herman Aubrey Boyce, in Only Fools and Horses. The poshest of Del Boy's friends and associates ordering such a combination for his beloved wife Marlene. But I digress. Let's not forget that we also have the poshest Greggs. The son seems obsessed with the branch on Abbeygate Street which they have now written about at least three times in the space of two years. The latest article, entitled Is This the Most Beautiful Greggs in the UK? The Times recently followed suit, citing it as a good starting point for for a visit to the town. Little do they know, and don't tell them, the front at least is something of a local embarrassment with peeling paint and rotting holes in the woodwork. Come on, Greggs, get your act together. Or maybe they are too posh to care. Or just prefer shabby chic. But cherries and cocktail umbrellas aside, our town is indeed blessed with some beautiful buildings dating back centuries. The Abbey, St Edmundsbury Cathedral, Moises Hall, the Guildhall, Theatre Royal, St Mary's Church, Angel Hotel, the Athenaeum, Capola House, the list goes on. But I hate to say, as remarkable as it is, I still don't think it's anything without the Bosch's Poundland. In his latest article, local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor investigates the letters MW, a tribute to a brewery founder. High up on the gable wall of the Green King building, which faces the rear of the Dog and Partridge in Bridewell Lane, there are the letters M.W. and a date of 1789. The letters stand for Matthias Wright, whose family had owned a brewery on this site for much of the 18th century. In fact, three generations had been involved. The family had made astute marriages to landed gentry in both Norfolk and Suffolk, so much so that they were to become foremost in the activities of Bury St Edmunds. Matthias was involved in the brewing business for 30 years with his brother Walter, who, though a member of the Bury Corporation for a time, never achieved what Matthias did, and that was to become Alderman. Not only was Matthias involved in local politics, he found time among his business duties to become a local JP, whilst living in Barrow. During his fourth term in office as Alderman, he died in 1805. His Westgate Brewery had been put on the market in 1798, but for several years after, there were no bids. After his death, however, an offer was put in by a newly formed business partnership, that of former Berry wool merchant, William Buck, and newcomer to Berry in 1789, Benjamin Green, 
a brewer from Oundle in Northamptonshire. The bid was accepted by Wright's executors. Buck had been in the, word tra- in the wool trade with James Oakes, Mr. Berry St. Edmunds of his day. But with the decline of the wool trade, Oakes moved into banking. Buck died in 1819, and Benjamin Green's Westgate Brewery would be his third would would be run by his third son Edward Green, and they merged with Fred King's St Edmund's Brewery in eighteen eighty seven to become Green King, possibly the largest independent brewery in the country. And our final feature article picks up on one of our headline stories, and it's uh, a Martin Newell opinion piece, which is titled. Just give us the money and we'll run our own radio stations. As I predicted a few months ago, some of our most popular presenters, DJs and entertainers are now flinging themselves from the windows of national and regional radio stations, sometimes before they're pushed. Entertainment is not the only area scheduled for the the corporation's latest efficiencies. Earlier this month, the Musicians Union are still vociferous, if dentally challenged old dog, drew attention to the BBC's proposed cuts to their classical division. This was after it was announced that the BBC intended to disband the BBC Singers and cut its three English orchestras by 20%, all part of a new classical music strategy. Just love that use of the word strategy, don't you? So... We'll prune a few orchestras comprising some world-class players merely to save some moolah, shall we? Soon after the announcement, the BBC was shamed by an outcry from the Musicians' Union and public alike into keeping on, for now at least, the BBC singers. This was accompanied by vague suggestions of possible privatisation as a way forward. Why is it happening now? Well... I could be wrong, but I'd blame a large part of it on the corporation's obsession bordering upon a fetish with blowing their budget on Lord News. I do not know how much it costs to broadcast the misery of the world in detail two dozen times a day, but I can't imagine it's cheap. What do we get? Typically, a presenter will ask a a military expert, say, for an opinion on the outcome of the war in Ukraine, The military expert will then only reply to the effect of not a clue, actually, but Zelensky could probably do with a bit more kit, and so could we. That's a valuable ten minutes of content there, as it's now called. Much of what masquerades as hard news nowadays is mainly speculation or general opinion. Expensive waffle, in other words. Other content may consist of tetchy presenters with rusty old axes to grind, attempting to bring down sundry politicians. A few years ago, while in conversation with a news flagship radio producer, I told her, I don't think you people in London realise how disliked you are here in the regions. This followed the revelation that the BBC's China editor, Carrie Gracie, had resigned after her discovery that the presenter, John Humphreys, was paid twice as much as she was. It was a matter which Humphreys reportedly joked about, saying he had no he had n- 
Nothing to apologise for. Charming. Finally, the politicians are having their revenge. The licence fee, currently frozen for two years, will soon be scrapped altogether. After all, some will argue, what is it but a type of poll tax? The BBC are being forced to make their own deep cuts. So why don't they cut down on the news regurgitation and sack some of their vastly overpaid metro gobs? Instead, they've busied themselves, evascorated their the regional stations to the point where highly valued community assets, such as radios, Suffolk and Essex, are reduced to sonic satellites, with nearly no remaining local content or character. When finally compelled to make national cuts, the Beeb's own bean counters will always hit the soft targets like the arts. Indie rock programmes are usually first to go, then they'll work their way up through the orchestras. What you have to understand about the BBC is that they're no longer this lovable, tweedy, out-of-touch old ginks which they once were. Worse, they're run by inverted snobs, the kind of middle-class twonks who think they're down with the kids because they once bought a Clash album. Willfully ignorant themselves, they consider all this classical stuff to be out of date. They probably think that all we benighted East Anglian peasants need is 50 years of meldewed old chart biggies on rotation. As the critic David Oldroyd Bolt recently said, quoting Michael Gove, it's the soft bigotry of low expectation. This, at least, is what we're being handed. It all dovetails neatly into what the increasingly desperate music biz is trying to do. Reselling us music, which we've now already bought four times over, on vinyl, cassette, CD, and finally on download. Just wait until the laser hologram remixes emerge. Then we can all rush out and buy them too. Meanwhile, on our national airways, BBC Two has become so dreadful that even Ken Bruce has fled. After the presenter informed them that he was resigning, following decades of faithful service, they pushed him out two months early anyway. They even gave him a Fortnum's food hamper and some flowers. Closer to home, cl- closer to home, sorry, at BBC Radio Suffolk, a slow destruction of the station started some years ago when the much-valued music presenter Stephen Foster left. The recent departures of Leslie Dolphin and Mark Murphy have been highly unpopular too. It is not acceptable. If the BBC can't run a decent local radio service, the government should give us the budget so that we can do it ourselves. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet, which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Pat, Carol and David, it's goodbye and we wish you all our listeners a very, very happy Easter.
You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.